Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. It's one of the most celebrated feats of World War II. On June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 troops stormed the beaches of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. Less known is that an unlikely snack helped power the Allies before, during, and after the historic mission. In 1937, the United States Army approached a food titan about creating a specially designed snack for its emergency rations. According to the food titan's chief chemist, Sam Hinkle, the United States government had just four simple requests about their new emergency snack. They had to weigh less than four ounces, be high in energy, withstand high temperature, and taste a little bit better than a boiled potato. The Army didn't want the snack to be so tasty that its soldiers would eat it in a non-emergency situation. The final product was called D-Ration Bars, a blend of chocolate, sugar, cocoa butter, skim milk powder, and oat flour. The viscous mixture provided too thick to move through the normal manufacturing setup at the plant, so initially each bar had to be packed into its 4-ounce mold by hand. As for taste, most who tried it said they would rather have eaten the boiled potato. The combination of fat and oat flour made the bar a dense brick, and the sugar did little to mask the overwhelmingly bitter taste. And since it was designed to withstand high temperature, the bar was nearly impossible to bite into, so most soldiers who ate it had to slice off slivers with their knife before chewing it. Despite the U.S. Army's best efforts to stop men from doing so, some of the D-ration bars ended up in the trash. Later on in the war, the Food Titan introduced a new version, known as the Tropical Bar, specifically designed for the extreme temperatures of the Pacific Theater. By the end of the war, the company had produced more than 3 billion ration bars. The bar was hardly the only sweet in D-Day rations. Sugar was an easy way to pep up troops, and the quick burst of energy it provided made a welcome addition to kit bags. Along with the D-rations, troops received three days' worth of K-rations. These were designed more as meal replacements and not sustenance snacks like D-rations, and came complete with coffee, canned meats, processed cheese, and tons of sugar. At various points throughout the war, men could find powdered orange or lemon drinks, caramel, chewing gum, and of course, more chocolate. The D-ration bars produced by the food titan known by the name of the Hershey's Chocolate Company wasn't the only contribution to the war effort made by Hershey. Hershey also produced parts for the naval anti-aircraft guns. And Hershey wasn't the only food titan of the era to join the nationwide effort to support American troops. Heinz created a self-heating can that could be lit with cigarettes. And Kellogg supplied the K-rations for the soldiers' breakfast. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. I know it's been a while, but there's a good explanation for that and we will get to that shortly. First and foremost, as always, we are recorded here in Cape Coral, Florida in the At Computer Studio. Thanks so much to our friends at At Computers, our first and only real sponsor, At Computers, as you know, at... At Computers, as you know, has been uh, servicing all Southwest Florida since 2004 for all their business IT needs, whether it's network administration, network expansion, wireless expansion, two-form authentication, online backups, tablet repair, laptop repair, anything technical, they can help you out. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And of course, if you're not in Southwest Florida, they can still help you via the internet. Go to their website, give them a call, and they will remote into your computer remotely and help you with all of your issues. So thanks so much for At Computers. We couldn't do this without you, and we couldn't do this without our patrons. Yes, go to d-410 or wtspworldwar2.com. 
click on the Patreon link on the right hand side, the one that's not balanced with the rest of the icons. Yes, I know because Patreon will not give me one that's balanced. No matter what I do to the code, it will not get dead nuts even with the rest of them. But anyhow, click on it. Join one of our three tiers. One's a dollar a month. One's three fifty a month. One's seven fifty a month. If you join the seven dollars and fifty cents a month plan, I will send you a free T-shirt of your choosing from our online store after month number two. And of course, while you're at WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Amazon link, save that to your favorites or on your desktop, wherever you want to put it. And whenever you shop on Amazon, please click on that and they will send us a few coins. And once those coins add up to around $100, they will allow us to transfer that into our bank account and support the network that way. Now that all the uh, shameless plugs and promotions are out of the way, and we thank you guys so much for supporting our sponsors, I want to just give you guys a little heads up before we bring on our next guest, a return guest and author. Um, I'm very excited about his new book. It just coincides with what's going on this weekend, and I know he's there. And I know a lot of you are listening to this on your way home from Conneaut, Ohio, for the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. And I wish it was on my bucket list. I just could not make it happen, especially after my travels to Fredericksburg, Texas, earlier this summer. So hopefully next year I will be out there with you guys. Yes, I know it's not the 75th anniversary, but it is what it is. I've already seen photos show up on Facebook. I'm excited to hear reports back from uh, the event, and we'll cover that in a future episode. But part of the reason why I haven't had an episode out in a while is because I have been mad crazy busy, um, not only with my life, with work, with the other uh, two podcasts that I do, but on the last episode, or the episode before that, we kind of got into talking about some of the cool things that reenacting has afforded us to do. And one of those cool things came to fruition with me, and I'm proud to say that I am now officially a paid background actor. Well, I guess technically I'm officially a paid um, background actor who's been paid for showing up the wardrobe. I still haven't got my check for the uh, scene I did, but anyhow... Um, I will let you guys know the secret project I'm working on in 2020 when it goes to air because I don't want to let any cats out of any bags because right now I'm only a background actor, but let me give you some details onto that. Oh, I don't know, about six months ago, coming down the reenacting pipeline, uh, word got out that the um, Netflix series The Marvelous Miss Maisel was recording in Miami and they were looking for background workers to be able to show up in 1950 era clothing and walk around the streets of Miami. In order to do so, you had to join up for this casting company. And so I did, and nothing came of it. And that's it. We move on. No, just playing. Um, nothing came of it. I forgot all about it. And about a month ago now, I got an email saying, hey, we are casting for this uh, new TV series that's coming out for a um, well-known cable channel. And it's a very cool project, and the executive producer is a huge Hollywood name. I don't even want to give out his information, because if you Google that, it will reveal itself. And, well, I don't want to do that yet. But it said, hey, this is a historical show. It takes place at a certain time period. We're looking for extras for this particular character. Would you be interested? And I clicked yes. I'm available, and I'm interested, and nothing came of it. Much like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but this is a bigger project, in my opinion, and would be more suited towards what we do as living historians. Two days later, though, I got another casting for the same project, but a different character because the extras they were casting for, I was too old. I'm now 41 years old, and the age group of the characters they were looking for was probably between the ages of 21 and 30. I got gray hair, I'm 6 foot 5, and I'm 41, so I'm too old. However, um, I'll give this part away because it's, it's a generic enough. 
they are casting for military officials, uh, NCOs, military officers. And, okay, cool. It just so happens that when I signed up for the casting company, the only photos I had readily available to me were... Uh, my reenacting photos. So I uploaded a bunch of those. My, you know, my Marine Corps uniform, my uh, 82nd Airborne uniform, my first ID uniform, and I uploaded. Even though I don't own the uniform, I uploaded photos of me with the Florida Flyboys when we did the photo shoot in front of the movie Memphis Bell. And then I forgot to mention this when I first got the first email about casting. One of the stipulations was you had to have recent headshots uploaded, and it could not be selfies. Well, crap. I got a ton of selfies, as most of you guys know, but I don't have any headshots because I'm not a model, and I'm sure as hell I'm not an actor. I'm a reenactor, but not an actor. And so I quickly went online. I reached out to a friend of mine I knew whose job it is to travel around to rock shows and take pictures of the bands on stage and behind stage and all that. And I reached out to her. I said, hey, I need headshots and a quickness. Are you available? And she said, well, I moved to Ocala, Florida. And for those of you who don't live in Florida, Ocala is about a four-hour drive from me. But she just so happened to have driven into Cape Coral 10 minutes before I sent her that message because she was in town to celebrate her mom's birthday. Want to talk about convenient? And, well, coincidental, cool. She said, yes, I have my camera on me. I'll be more than willing to do this, but can we get together tomorrow? And I said, sure. First question, how much are you going to charge? She said, well, I really don't do headshots a lot, and I haven't done them in a few years, so I won't charge you very much money. And I replied back, well, how much is not a lot of money? And she said, 30 bucks. I said, deal, I'll see you tomorrow. Because honestly, I was saying like $100. And so we met up. I quickly just grabbed the button-up shirt. Um, I just got my hair cut the day before. We ran out to a few places around town. Just took a few hundred photos of the digital camera. Not Nothing crazy. No lighting, nothing. Just we went down to a Ford's garage. I had some old Model A's out there and some old gas pumps. And then we went down to... The Echo Preserve, where the Iwo Jima statue is, and we went out into the um, swamp area in the boardwalks in front of all the mangrove trees and shot a few photos. She sent them to me. I uploaded five of them to the profile. Let's fast forward back to where we left off. Now I got the second casting email, but this one's not generic. This one was actually entitled to me. Dear Don Abernathy, we're casting for military officers. Would you be willing to get a haircut? Will you shave? And do you have any noticeable tattoos? I reply back, no tattoos. I'll absolutely will shave and do whatever you want to my hair within the hour i got a text message on my phone so now i went from a generic email to an email that was personalized to me to a text message on my phone it said what is your suit size well we're all reenactors we all know this answer but the problem is is i have lost 30 pounds since the purchase of my last uniform all my uniforms are a little too big for me now and truthfully i probably should replace them but who's got the money for that all my impressions, I'm basically the soldier who lost a bunch of weight in the field because I'm starving. So once again, I'm like, crap. Well, I really want to do this. I think it'll be cool, but I need to know my measurements. I don't want to give them the wrong measurements. I don't want to give them the measurements off my uniforms and then show up the wardrobe and my uniform be too big. So I quickly got on Google, found a local tailor, called him up. He said, come on down. I'll give you your measurements for five bucks. And now I'm $35 into this whole venture. Still, why not? You know, 35 bucks, we're, we're hardly... You know, throwing good money after bad at this point. We're barely into it. So I did that. Sent out my uniform sizes. Got a text message back the next day. Congratulations, you got the casting gig. What day can you show up for um, wardrobe? Drove to Orlando. Went up to Universal Studios on the day they suggested. Went down there for wardrobe and haircut. Now here's the funny part. Everybody in there, they're getting a haircut. Military style for the era. And, um... 
I'm not trying to give away too much information, but let's just say the era was only within a few years north or south of the time era that I usually portray and that the haircut I walk around on a daily basis is. And so they basically just cleaned me up a little bit and sent me on my way because I already had the correct haircut. So I did that, went down, got sized up for my uniform, and uh, drove back to Cape Coral. Had My call time was in Orlando on Monday at 6.18 a.m., and that's a three-hour drive. And my dad said, you know what, if you're going to do this, you don't want to show up and be tired all day and waste your time, effort, the day off of work and all the travel, so why not try to find your hotel room and stay the night somewhere by Orlando the night before, which I did. I found a cheap room on Orbitz uh, that was super cheap. My dad told me to bring a body condom, but I said nay. I checked all the reviews. Turns out the motel had just been remodeled and super clean. The only reason it's so cheap is because it was on Orbitz and it's the off-season and they're looking to fill up rooms. So I got my room up in Kissimmee, Florida, and um, I reached out to my buddy Cowboy, who's been on the show, because Cowboy saw that I was in Orlando for my wardrobe and messaged me and said, hey, if I knew you're in town, I would have come up and met with you because I'm only 30 minutes away. And so now I'm in Kissimmee, Florida, the night before, and I have nothing to do. I'm up there by myself. So I reached out to Cowboy, and he drives it 30 minutes down, and we decided to go out to Hooters. And he said, you know, Chopper lives here in town. Now, Chopper is also another reenactor here in Florida who hasn't been on the show. He does a lot of German and used to do some uh, airborne impressions. So I reached out to him. He was available. So me, Chopper, and Cowboy had a nice dinner at Hooters. We had a little miniature uh, living historian get-together. Had a good time. Woke up the next morning. Went down to the uh, country club where we shot the scene. Get in a wardrobe, and I'm standing around, and the assistant director comes up, and he introduces himself to a few of us. And I say, hey, I'm Don Abernathy. Nice to meet you. He looks at me and goes, well, are you in the military? To which I replied, no, I'm a living historian. This is kind of what I do. He said, living historian, what's that? Now, the assistant director is European. He's a limey. He's a Brit. Nice enough guy. But he looks at me, and he says, living historian, what's that? And I said, well, I'm a World War II reenactor. I go out to museums, air shows. I host a podcast. I went out to Texas, yada, yada, yada. And he said, oh, kind of like Civil War reenacting. I said, yes, exactly, but World War II. He said, that interests me. I didn't know that was a thing. I want to hear more about it later. And he walks off. And I think nothing of it. I said, well, here's the director. Just be nice to the background extras. Cool. Didn't think anything of it. Go in. We shoot a few scenes. I get lucky enough that I'm placed behind the principal actor in the scene. I'm over his left shoulder. So when this show comes out, episode one, when they're introducing one of the main characters of this series, I will be standing behind the main character, actually one of the main principal actors. And so I should have a decent amount of background time when during this scene. So that was cool. But anyhow, but anyhow, we go to lunch and lo and behold, the director walks up to me. He says, tell me more about this living history stuff. And so I tell him more about it, and we're talking. He's like, I like you. I want to have you back for more episodes. Sweet. I made a good impression on the assistant director. Obviously, he's the assistant director because he's directing the episode or the scene of the episode I'm in and not the entire series. Uh, there's a bigger name that's doing that. I don't want to give his name away because you could Google him and find out this project. But the good news is I made an impression on the assistant director. And that was at the end of uh, July. Now, when I left, I heard that they're recording episode two in August, which is this month, and I did get a casting request, but here's a weird thing about this casting request, is it said that they were casting for multiple roles the very next day. 
I made a few phone calls. I figured I could take the day off. I hit I was available, but I haven't heard anything back on those. Now, I did find it was a little weird that they're doing casting 24 hours from the time that they sent out the email. So I don't know if it was a uh, typo on as far as the date goes because it didn't say 24 hours from now. It said on the 7th. I thought maybe it would be today on the 17th. But either way, I haven't heard anything back yet, but... Um, knowing the storyline of what's going on, there's different branches of the military involved in this. And because I already played an extra on screen as a officer in one branch of the military, chances are episode two is a different branch of the military. So they won't need me to play a character in that branch because I'm already dedicated to a specific branch. So hopefully maybe, um, in the next month or two, I will be in another episode, but even if I don't, um, I will give you guys more information and I will let you know the name of the show when it gets ready to air and we'll let uh, that cat out of the bag. And so that is what I have been up to. Um, I've been trying to get my foot into the um, background extra world of television and it's seemed to work out all right so far. I did shoot uh, f- uh, three scenes in one location. I was in the background, very prominent role, so prominent fact that me and five other guys got released early because we were seen so much on screen they had to use the other extras to fill in blank spots for continuity purposes. Otherwise, the audience would be like, why is the same four people in every scene? So we got sent home early because we had been seen so much in that scene, in those scenes, I guess I should say. And so that is my little bit of my dipping the toe into the world of background extra work. Hopefully I get some more work. But anyhow... That's what has been going on, and um, that's where we are at. I already have another guest booked, so the next episode following this one won't be so far out. But thank you guys for continuing to support our channel, support our show, and share us with your friends. Um, you know, For those of you who don't know, if you're downloading the podcast directly from WTSPWorldWar2.com, that's cool. Um, but if you want to share us with your friends and they are more podcast aficionados or they want to know where else to find us, you can find us on iTunes, Google Music, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere your quality podcasts are available with the exception of Pandora because Pandora makes you sign a whole big manifesto of why you should be on their channel and I just don't feel like doing it. So thank you guys so much and let's get on our next guest. Joining us on the phone once again, it's almost been a year to the date. He last appeared on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast on 822 of 18. He is a living historian and a newly minted author. His name, you probably know him if you've been around for the show for a long time or if you are a living historian yourself and you're all over Facebook. I'm sure you know this gentleman. He is fantastic at what he does, and he's an inspiration to all of us, Mr. Jared Frederick. Jared, how are you doing today? I'm very good, and thank you for the gracious introduction. Well, you know, it's no lie. I will tell you, your episode that you did back uh, last year was one of the um, most continuous downloaded uh, episodes that we have, especially when it comes to reenactors. Um, some of our episodes with the um, authors and um, movies people, like the episode we did with the fine people over at Walking Point, get consistent downloads. But as far as reenactors go and living historians, yours is one of the more popular episodes, and I'm happy to announce to all your fans you're back. And this time, um, and the nice thing about having you back is we don't have to waste time talking about how you got into living history because everybody can go back and download that on episode 19. But we want to talk about something cool, and that is you've been able to parlay your love for history and uh, reenacting and being a living historian as well as a – now, 
not to confuse you with a Marine, obviously, but we know that once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. Is it the same when you're a, um, a, uh, Ranger? Are you a retired Ranger? Are you an ex-Ranger? That's Park Ranger for those <laughs> you joining us. How does that, are you technically a retired Park Ranger, an ex-Park Ranger? Are you on hiatus? How does that work? Um, I was officially done wearing the, the green and the gray in 2014. Uh, however, uh, the the traits that I, I learned, I still carry with me in the classroom and also when I do living history. And so it really laid a solid foundation for me, I like to think, in regard to my public history career. So I think it's safe to say once a ranger, always a ranger. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. And I'm just, I'm so excited for you because this has got to be a big deal. You have now your first published book, or maybe it's not your first it's the first that I know about. It's uh, actually my sixth. Your your how many? Sixth. Sixth. Well, I do apologize for that. I got to get to reading your That's other five quite all books. Right. <laughs> now, is this by your largest on that scale, or is um, this right up there with the other five? I actually uh, got started in the publishing business when I was in high school, and I started out by doing historically themed books for young adults because I thought that there was a particular lack of material available for people who were in middle school especially. Um, and so I wrote and illustrated books about American Civil War and also about Pennsylvania history uh, when I was in high school. And uh, that really set the path forward um, to publishing for a, a broader audience um, in the forthcoming years. Well, the cool thing about that, and I will admit, my, um, my better half is a fourth grade teacher. And in the uh, education world, they have what they call um, approved reading for grade levels. And she brought a book home that she had ordered using her scholastic points, but it was primarily aimed towards fifth and sixth graders. So it was a little, a little high for her fourth grade readers. But it was a book about something I wasn't aware of, and I actually used this book, meant for fifth graders, on the episode we did. I did the little monologue at the beginning about the Triple Nickels, and that was the first African-American airborne group that was formed uh, right around the middle of the war. Unfortunately, they never saw any combat, much to their dismay. However, where they really succeeded and went down in history is they were used to combat forest fires on the West Coast when we were concerned about the Japanese barrage balloons coming over. Right. And a lot of the smoke jumper uh, techniques and standards that we use nowadays to fight forest fire were started and created by these gentlemen back in the day. And so the fact that I learned that from a book meant for fourth grade reading on a scholastic level, it just goes to show you, you will never, never allow yourself to think that you're um, too good to read in certain places because you'll be surprised what you find when you're not even looking for it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And not to mention the importance, especially nowadays, of getting that information out to a younger audience and doing it in a man manner in which they can easily consume it and doing it in a way that you can make it more pal palatable to them and interesting to them while also removing the violence in the side of combat that you really don't want to share with young children. And that in itself takes a lot of talent. Yeah, we have to try our best. <laughs> So the new book, Dispatches of D-Day, um, has just recently been released. Um, is that on hardback and paperback, or just primarily paperback? It is paperback. That's a beautiful cover. What, what can we learn from this book that we already don't know about D-Day? I mean, we all know about the Airborne. We all hear a lot more about Point to Hawk. 
Um, what's some of the cool stuff? Well, let's back up a little bit. I guess I'm, I'm jumping a little too deep. How did this book come together? I'm assuming that um, due to your research that you do for your living history group, and because you guys are f fantastic and phenomenal about the amount of research, and as you and I spoke on the last podcast about what people can do to improve their living history displays and what they teach to the public, was it a lot of that research that brought this book together, or was it something else? Uh, interestingly enough, and this often surprises people when I tell them this, but the the book actually its origins begin in a dumpster really and uh i'll, I'll backpedal and uh set the scene here a little bit uh i teach uh history at penn state altoona and one day a student brought in a large bundle of yellowed newspapers from the 1940s and one of his elderly neighbors had recently passed away and regardless of what those newspapers meant to their original owner, they apparently didn't mean too much to the descendants of that person. Mm -hmm. um, and so he actually salvaged them from a dumpster as the house was being cleaned out. And he brought them into class and presented them to me because, in his words, I liked old stuff like this. <laughs> um, and indeed, I do. And he and I began to page through these old periodicals, and we were uh, quite frankly mesmerized by the level of detail and revealing insight that they evoked. Um, everything from syndicated newspaper reports from well-known national correspondents uh, to letters that were subsequently published uh, in you know, these little local papers after soldiers sent them home. Um, and then, so too, you know, even advertisements were revealing, uh, because almost every advertisement was themed around the war effort in mm -hmm. one form or another. Uh, and so it was just a, a very surprising and revealing portrait of 1940s life that we could gain from these papers. And I realized that I could use this. And so I began to dig deep in the various newspaper archives, and so many of these newspapers have been digitized in the past decade. Uh, and so I uh, began to do keyword searches through these various newspapers that are made available to me. And I ended up transcribing 300,000 words in newspaper articles dating between March and August of 1944. Well, let me ask you this, um, just because sure. I do have a stack of Time Life magazines, and early on when I did this podcast, I would read um, some of the articles in that. And when you were talking about this earlier, about the glimpse in the 1940 lifestyle, and then you're talking about transcribing all those words, is do you, I personally, now I'm not an educator, I'm just a you know, a computer guy in a podcast, but one of the things I notice about those old articles is the vocabulary and how a lot of that stuff, those words really either, they take on different meanings today or when you're reading it, they don't, in your mind or when you're reading it out loud or to somebody else, you almost have to rewrite some of the phrases because they are so dated or those words are rarely used nowadays that they almost don't make sense when you're trying to express that in a modern day form. Did you kind of discover those words too, or is it something that you're used to doing because of all your reading? 
in certain circumstances, uh, there were some vocabulary words that puzzled me. Uh, but even more revealing, uh, I found out how how widespread their vocabulary was mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, the 1940s generation were incredibly well-versed, uh, and they really adopted a love of reading and literacy. Uh, and we can see that in everything from not only newspapers and magazines of the time, but if you look at something like the Armed Service Edition books that were given out by the tens of millions to service members, uh, it's little wonder why so many of them wanted to obtain a college education when they came home from the war. Uh, they really adopted this love of reading and learning while they were in the service. And I, I reflect on this to an extent in my book. And uh, one of the, the favorite uh, phrases or sayings that, that I came by in my research um, when a sailor was speaking about those armed service editions, he said to throw one away was tantamount to slapping your grandmother. <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was just so insightful um, to me. And it, it really highlights, you know, this uh, important uh, kind of leisurely activity that these millions of, of service members adopted while they were away from home. Well, I think one of the things we take for granted, particularly nowadays, is back then, keep in mind, you know, TV was still in development. It wasn't widespread. It was probably still in the lab. And so your only real form of communication was radio, which, once again, with radio, you're painting pictures with your words. And so the bigger the vocabulary, the deeper, the better you sound like a 1940s version of Dennis Miller, the better you are. And when you're writing letters to your loved ones, to your family members, to employers, wherever, because that's... With the exception of telephones, that's the only real major form of communication. Um, the bigger, the deeper your vocabulary, the more intellectual you came off sounding, and the more important it was to hone those skills. And let's keep in mind, it's that generation, i.e. my parents' parents, who coined the phrase boob tube as they sat and watched their kids get dumber watching TV. Because when you're watching TV and everything is expressed visually, um, you have a generation of people who no longer need the skills and requirements of those large vocabularies to paint the pictures because now instead of relying on books and radio to spread a message you have these talkies these television shows these movies and it's kind of crazy you know going back to 1999 if you explain to somebody hey in 2020 everybody's going to have a digital device in their pocket we're all going to be communicating through text and through the internet you would just assume that we would go back that same direction, that our vocabulary would expand, our vocabulary would get better, our reading would in increase, um, literacy would get better. But ironically, it's gone the other way. The advent of short, 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 shorthand, i.e. through the expression of emotes, it's actually gone the other direction where some could say that um, our vocabulary is getting worse and our attention span is getting worse. And I think, uh, you know, when we take those things into consideration, uh, you know, as we look 75 years back, I think it, it just underscores the value of the written word, the, the value of letter writing, which is a, a lost art. Uh, something else, too, that was expressed by soldiers of the 1940s uh, was the value of the, the free press uh, mm -hmm. as well, uh, to present the truth and to always present the truth. 
in such a manner. And uh, certainly, I think all of those things collectively are things that we most certainly should reflect upon three quarters of uh, a century later. Um, and, you know, and, and this was something that was preached as gospel to troops of the time. Um, and Stars and Stripes, which was one of the, the main primary sources I used in my book, uh, really hit this home to it, its readers. Uh, Stars and Stripes was the most read newspaper in the world in 1944, just because of the, the sheer number of military members uh, reading it at the time. And uh, if I may, I, I have a, a quote here right in front of you. It's a, a very short one Please. that I think is, is very revealing. And uh, this is what Stars and Stripes said immediately before the Normandy in invasion. And it said, uh, the quest to self-educate will in itself make you a better informed soldier, a better educated American. And in the days ahead, when it becomes your job to help decide issues on which the future all depends, your knowledge of the big picture will make you a better citizen. And in a small way, that will help make this a better world. And in my mind, that sentiment could appear in a newspaper of 2018 or 2019. And I, I think this, too, alludes to, uh, in many ways, you know, that notion of their work still goes on. The reasons that they were fighting uh, still goes on. And so it's a, a very relevant and uh, a pertinent story. And those are some of the, the major themes I tried to reflect upon in my work. And so now you find yourself standing in front of a stack of newspaper, and you're reading all these articles, as you, as you said earlier, um, and you realize that this is valuable stuff. You know, this student who brought this to you, who literally preserved history. And you said something earlier that um, occurred to me about, oh, I don't know, 12 years ago when the show Pawn Stars first did uh, hit the TV airwaves and I would see people coming to the pawn shop and selling their grandfather's World War II uniforms and that is how insane that something that meant so much to somebody else can mean so little to the very next generation of the same bloodline. Here is a uniform that your grandfather survived the war in or even your grandmother if she you know was part of the, the women's auxiliary corps nurse or what have you. They held on to for all these years. They protected from uh, moths eating them up they protect, protected it from mold, and you get it, okay, it may be worth a couple bucks, let's go sell it off. And I just put up a video on my page the other day, and it's kind of similar. Um, I picked up on Facebook Marketplace, and this was more of a PSA to fellow collectors, and that is when you're bringing a wood item into your collection, make sure you um, sanitize it first, because this particular footlocker, um, the guy's neighbor's daughter was getting ready to throw away, his granddaughter. Uh, grandfather's in uh, assisted living. She has his foot locker, and she threw it on the curb, and the neighbor luckily grabbed it, put it in his garage for a while, and then I got it on Facebook Marketplace. But this thing is so infected with carpenter ants that I've had to isolate it and try to kill the ants, but that's not the point. The point is, once again, as you said earlier, when someone holds something so dear, such as a foot locker or newspaper articles or or uniforms, or even medals. I mean, how many times have we seen stories where people have located purple hearts at the Salvation Army or at a thrift store because their families just either don't realize what it, the intrinsic value or the sentimental value should be to it, or they just, they're bitter against their parents, whatever it may be. But I always find it a little shocking and somewhat discouraging to see people who have such little disregard, not only for 
world history, but just for the family history, it just kind of blows my mind. Yeah, and it's a, a fairly prevalent problem where we see history being perceived as nothing more than a financial commodity. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a lack of context or lack of appreciation where people purely see their grandfather's helmet or his jump knife uh, as something that can be turned into a quick buck. Uh, And, you know, really, I think it's uh, the lack of of education that that people are receiving. And I think on a a far broader note, um, you know, we just see a deappreciation of not only history, but the humanities in general. And I think that sort of ambivalence or amnesia is a contributing factor to people not wishing to cherish their family history. Yeah, it's, I, I guess the only silver lining, if we're looking for one, is if those family members did cherish those things. Um, guys like me and you, our collections would be a lot smaller. Uh, the upside of that is That's we wouldn't true. have to work so hard to preserve history, but the downside is, is our unquenchable thirst for um, history would be harder to uh, obtain these things because no one would want to let them go. And so you have all this material, and you're, and you're getting the idea, well, hey, this may be my next book, book number six. Um, was it kind of hard to condense all this information down to an easy 320 pages, or was it uh, did it all just kind of fall in place that way? In some ways, it was challenging um, in regard to how I wish to structure it and how do you prioritize which stories you want to present. But once I overcame that first hurdle, it seemed to me like the book almost wrote itself because the source material was so rich, the vast majority of it has not been seen or read since 1944. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when I embarked on this endeavor and colleagues and friends and family were asking me what my next project was and I told them, uh, you know, there was a a bit of uh, uncertainty or perhaps some scoffing done on their part as they wondered what could you possibly write that was new or fresh about D-Day. I mean, there must be hundreds of books written on it. Uh, It's been written about and depicted at every conceivable level. But as I often tell my students, you know, on June 6th, there were upward of 150,000 Allied soldiers who went ashore. And every single one of them had a story. And the vast majority of them never wrote down the story and in all likelihood did not share it on a widespread basis. Uh, and so there, there is still much that can be written that is new and fresh and can provide uh, a unique perspective that has not been covered before. And luckily for me, uh, in these 150 so newspapers that I ended up uh, going through as my main sources, uh, there were untold numbers of first-hand accounts written by soldiers within two or three weeks of the invasion. They wrote these accounts home to their family members. And then their family sent them into the local newspaper, knowing that everybody else in their hometown would have interest in what the local sons and daughters were up to while they were overseas. 
And to my surprise and delight, uh, these letters were not censored to the extent that I imagined that they would have been. And there are some that are incredibly grim, uh, pessimistic, uh, even violent. And then there are others that are comical, emotional, romantic, and it, they reveal every spectrum of, you know, the, the emotional rainbow that, that you could possibly conceive of. And so it was these lost voices of the Normandy invasion that really became the bedrock of my narrative. Well, and the nice thing about the time period in which you pulled this material from is, once again, this is material that the editors found was suitable for publish. I mean, there's probably more letters that were sent in that just weren't, um, I guess, reader-worthy as far as what the editor was concerned. But obviously, if this stuff made it to print, it had to be something that was worthy enough, um, something that grasped, held on to you enough that it would, you know, at the end of the day, as it sounds, sells newspapers. And so the fact that this stuff saw the light of day, there had to be some quality to it to begin with there. And back to what you're saying about your family's concerns about you publishing another book into the pool of that known as D-Day. The benefit of that, at least I would assume, as being a writer yourself, is if you're adding more content to a well-defined pool, you can get right to the meat and potatoes in your book because you don't have to spend two chapters filling in a backstory. Everybody knows about D-Day. Everybody knows the dates, who was involved, where it was at, what was going on, the amount of casualties and all that. And so you're able to minimize your fort you know your your groundwork as far as laying the grounds of here's what's going on because everybody already knows so you can get right to the subject at hand and introduce your characters work on your character development and get the stories out there indeed and i i like to think of my book as a rather organic history of the normandy invasion because often how it was taught to us in school um, often how it is written in a number of, of history books, it's a very top-down approach. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can read about Eisenhower and, and Bradley and Beadlesmith and Montgomery and high-level personnel like that to our heart's delight. And while I certainly talk about those individuals, especially Eisenhower, uh, in my book, um, I take a, a rather opposite approach, and it's uh, bottom-to-top rather than, than top-down. And uh, the vast majority of people you'll read about in my book you will have never heard of. And it was, you know, I had never heard of them. Uh, but it became my mission to know them, and it was these people who, for the better part of, of two years, I was, I was researching, and I was trying to uh, put a, a face and a, a certain degree of emotion uh, to their words. Um, not only soldiers and, and allied personnel overseas, uh, but also their family members back home. And this, I think, is, is perhaps one of the, the more unique mm -hmm. contributions of my book, uh, is that we often don't get the home front perspective of June 6, 1944. Sure. How were people back home reacting to news of, of this great crusade, as Eisenhower called it. Uh, and, you know, it, as many people of the time thought, you know, they, they thought of it as the best kept secret in, of their time. Everyone knew it was coming, but they had no conception of when. When would the, the spring 
or when would the, the trap be, you know, sprung? Sure. And, uh, you know, Americans didn't know whether to celebrate, to mourn, to pray, go to church, have a parade. Uh, do we close down our businesses uh, for the day? Uh, and it, it varies from town to town. Um, but ultimately, what it turns into is th this very dramatic moment where the American people recommit themselves to the war effort. Maybe you take on an extra shift at the factory. Uh, maybe the kids will go out and work a few extra hours, you know, on the scrap drive line. Um, and D-Day represented various things to various people. And perhaps the most surprising thing that I encountered is how African-Americans reacted to the news mm -hmm. of the invasion. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, they saw D-Day as a potential new birth of freedom for the United States uh, because they realized at that moment, and they hoped other Americans would realize at that moment as well, that there were over a million African-Americans serving in the armed forces in 1944, yet they were serving in a segregated army, and they hoped that D-Day would be a wake-up call to their fellow citizens uh, that, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, these service members would be able to gain the rights that they had earned as a result of serving in uniform. And uh, so that was one of the, the really surprising things that I found, um, and also inspirational things when you think about it, um, about how, in particular, African-American newspapers responded to it with the expectation that these contributions are going to lead to bigger and better things, leading to a greater society of inclusion and also a broader civil rights movement, uh, which, of course, would happen after the Second World War. And not only that, but, uh, well, that and I'm currently reading another book. It's about the uh, Japanese-American and their con contribution to the war effort. And what I didn't know uh, was this book early on goes deep into the immigration pattern of the Chinese and the Japanese into uh, the United States and how a majority of, at the time, a majority of the population of the um, territory of Hawaii were actually made up of um, Japanese immigrants. They're actually, I think mm -hmm. the population definitely outweighed that of um, Anglos and even um, natural-born Hawaiians. And actually how at that time the um, Japanese were probably ahead of the other Asian populations in California because of the uh, Chinese and their immigration policies. And that kind of, because of that population growth in that area, unfortunately, that's part of the reason what led to the internment camps. But that also gave those um, Japanese, the American-born Japanese, um, Japanese Americans, their opportunity. They they kind of felt the same way. Hey, you know, uh, we got these internment camps going on, but this is our chance to show people that yes, we are Jap of Japanese heritage and descent, but we are Americans through and through. And so they were they were clamoring to join up and show that hey. Um, despite what happened to, from our ancestors' homelands, that's not the way we feel. And uh, we want to show that we're in it through and through and that we bleed red, white, and blue like the rest of you guys. And it was their chance to uh, kind of do the same thing. Precisely. Now, you, you, you got all this content coming your way. And like you said, um, 
D-Day is a well, um, well-worn path, but you have all this new content, and you're able to get the stuff out. Um, is there anything that really jumps off the page? Is, is there a particular uh, story? Obviously, we don't want to give away all the details, but a quick brief synopsis that people can look forward to is a particular, uh, I don't want to say character, because all these people truly existed. Is there a storyline or something that really stands out that you were so glad that you had the opportunity to present to the world because you knew that, with the exception of the people who read this newspaper article 75 years ago, that, you know, here's your chance to preserve somebody's name and their, their history. Yeah, there, there, there are hundreds of people in my book and, and I can think of, of many, many different ways to, to answer that. There's uh, everything from the surprising to the sublime, to the tragic, to the humorous. Uh, and uh, it's uh, a very wide spectrum of, of emotions um, through many, many different eyes that, that I could convey. Um, and, you know, speaking in a, a journalistic sense, uh, one character that I grew uh, a, a special or particular affection for as I was doing my research and I was, I was finding his name uh, quite frequently was a journalist for the Associated Press whose name was Don Whitehead. And, you know, when we think of uh, World War II correspondence today, the first one that immediately comes to most people's mind is Ernie Pyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly Ernie Pyle uh, looms largely in the narrative of my book. Um, he, he painted pictures with words very eloquently. Um, but right behind him, and, and perhaps on an equal level, is Don Whitehead. And this was, D-Day was Whitehead's uh, sixth invasion in the war, and his fellow correspondents nicknamed him Beachhead Dawn for his ability to survive these various amphibious landings. And he was one of the very few reporters to go ashore on Omaha Beach in some of the opening waves of the invasion. And his uh, account is of a very high literary standard in, in my view. Um, he said it was, it was hotter than hell, um, such was the rate of fire pouring down uh, upon these men, you know, these waterlogged troops who were carrying 80, 90 pounds of gear. And he said no matter where these men tried to run to, there was no place that was safe. And no matter where a shell landed, it was going to hit somebody every time, such was the amount of congestion as this uh, bottleneck, you know, uh, grew bigger and bigger as that, that conveyor belt onto the beach, so to speak, just kept rolling. Um, and so, you know, it was a real honor to rediscover and interpret and hopefully, uh, you know, well present his words in my book. Um, and so that that's just one of of many examples, and uh, many of his uh, wartime uh, reports um, are, are out there in, in a published volume, and I found some additional context uh, in those as well. Um, and so, you know, there, there's very revealing and, and intimate uh, caricatures such as, as Whitehead, 
Um, and then, you know, there's, there's the comical ones as well. I found the story of a, a corporal from New York City whose name was Mike Mislewski, and he was an Army mechanic. And uh, this was a few days past D-Day. You know, he was, you know, fixing up vehicles that had been damaged on the beach in one form or another. And he was there in this uh, opening all by himself working on these vehicles. And out of the corner of his eye, he notices a small squad of men in German uniforms. They're peering at him. And he determined that the best thing that he could do was just to play ignorant and pretend that he didn't see them. Just keep working on the Jeeps. Play possum. He wasn't armed. And he thought, I'm just, I'm just going to play dumb and see how this plays through. And so they inch a little bit closer, and he starts then to sing a song in Polish that his mother had taught him when he was a child. And once more out of the corner of his eye, he see these Germans with, these, with this very puzzled look on their faces. And to Mislewski's surprise, they started to sing along with him. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment that he realized that these men were in fact Polish conscripts. Yep. They had been slave soldiers under the Third Reich for the past four or five years. And they ended up surrendering to him. And uh, he fed them. They helped him finish the vehicle that he was fixing up. Uh, And then he took them into the military police, which were presumably only a few hundred yards away. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, he's the only American soldier in Normandy to have captured enemy soldiers with a blowtorch in hand. (laughs) That's fantastic. I I mean, one, like you said, they, they, because of the song he was singing and obviously his last name, but two, when, when you're forced to fight for a cause you don't believe in, for a nation you have nothing to do with, it was probably a great relief to them. Because obviously when they saw the guy, if they're concerned about you know following orders, they would have neutralized him as soon as they had the chance. But mm-hmm. they were studying him, he was studying them. And then once they heard that familiar song of their childhood... Um, they, they probably got a little sense of calm and ease and saying, okay, here's a guy that we could probably surrender to who, uh, will have a better chance of surviving. And I, I found many stories like that. Yeah. Um, as I was researching, um, particularly with, uh, some of the paratroopers who were the, the first into Normandy, uh, where they came across soldiers who were Polish, Russian, Czech, and, at first, a lot of these Americans had difficulty convincing these men to surrender their arms or to turn against their officers because these conscripts were deathly afraid of the officers who were in charge of them. Mm-hmm. Um, because oftentimes these, these were hardline Nazis who had a, a, a fierce sense of conviction to the Fuhrer and the Third Reich. Um, and, you know, these conscripts thought for certain that if I try to turn on them, it's going to be the end of me. Um, but in cases more often than not, the Americans were, were able to successfully, if, if not slowly, convince um, a lot of those slave soldiers um, to give up their arms, give up their positions, and uh, perhaps even uh, subdue the officers who had been in charge of them for, you know, months or years prior to that. 
And luckily, that's one place, you know, don't get me wrong, Hitler was fantastic at brainwashing people, but on a scale of that, that's one place where he didn't succeed as well as the Japanese Empire, because we've heard countless stories, especially in Okinawa and later on the war, that as the Americans and the Marines and the Army were winning, um, we started seeing suicide amongst the um, the uh, populace of those atolls and those islands because they had been so well indoctrinated and convinced that the Americans were nothing more than rapists and cannibals that they determined that it was far better to commit themselves, kill themselves and to kill their children than it was to surrender. And luckily we didn't see that of that magnitude over in Europe. And that yeah, these guys that's a, who were forced, point. the guys who were forced to fight, they were just waiting for their white flag moment. Because once again, you're being forced to kill people. You're not a trained soldier. You're fighting for a person who's insane. You're fighting for a country you have no loyalty to. And you were taken away from your home, and after probably seeing your villages wiped out, the resentment is through the roof. But the only reason they fought was through fear. I mean, we've all seen this, the uh, scene in Enemy at the Gates where the Russians didn't have enough firearms, and they're told, basically, you pick up the gun of the guy who dies in front of you, and if you try to retreat, we'll mow you down ourselves. Once again, fear-based combat is no way to win a war. Yeah, no, that's uh, a very excellent point. I mean, morale is key especially in long, drawn-out, arduous combat such as that we faced in World War II. The book, Dispatches of D-Day, A People's History of Normandy Invasion, by our friend Jared Frederick. Jared, where can people get your book? Um, they can get it off of Amazon, and uh, they can also visit my website at jaredfrederick.com and order there if they wish to uh, obtain a personalized copy. Now, I know within the last week or so, you've been kind of doing a small book tour or even speeches at uh, various different uh, museums and locations of uh, living history. Are you still doing that, or is that all wrapped up? I'm, uh, I'm still on the road. I uh, did three different uh, book presentations this week alone, this past week, and uh, I've, been, I've been all over the Mid-Atlantic uh, all this summer. Um, and uh, I also, uh, uh, with, along with a number of my fellow reenactors in my organization, uh, we went to Normandy and other areas of France for about 10 days. Um, and so it's been a very busy and uh, momentous and rewarding uh, summer here yeah. to uh, mark the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. How was that as a not only a historian, but as a living historian, I've been seeing some pretty nightmarish photos come out from that uh, <laughs> that celebration of people who clearly aren't um, full-time living historians and all that. But all in all, how was your experience over there with, when it came to the, uh, the, the anniversary? Yeah, well, um, we very purposely went at the end of June rather than the beginning of June. Uh, because we wanted the dust to settle, and we, we didn't want to be uh, overwhelmed by the number of, of crowds and uh, uh, the, the jammed roadways in Normandy, which are very small in most cases. Um, and so, But all that said, we were still able to attend a number of 75th anniversary commemorations, uh, because, of course, all throughout June and July, there were towns being liberated, Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, and we went to, uh, events that were both, uh, small and humble, uh, a small town called Reville that was liberated by, uh, the 4th Infantry Division, um, in the final weeks of June. 
And uh, we were also able to attend uh, the 75th anniversary uh, celebration for the liberation of Cherbourg at the end of June, um, both at which uh, my small group were the only Americans present. And so there was a, a great sense of uh, uh, obligation and uh, really pride in being able to uh, become the de facto representatives of our country. At, at these various events, uh, and so uh, it, it was it was a, a truly wonderful time, and uh, we were on the road from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. essentially every night, uh, making the most of our, our time in France. Um, right. We didn't see too many reenactors while we were overseas. Uh, we saw a number of uh, period vehicles whizzing by here and there. Um, but uh, like I said, a lot of the, the dust had settled by uh, the, the time that we were out there exploring. I would imagine, um, I'm not sure if this was your first time over there or if you're, you've been over there before, but I would imagine the first time you're there and you see the landscape, you feel the weather, um, you can feel the soil, and just be in the area in which these things that you and I and the listeners of this podcast, we spend so much of our free time researching and imagining in our minds. It probably makes you look at all this in a whole new perspective. It's one thing to, you know, read and look at images, but when you're actually there and you can see the landscape for what it is and feel the weather and just breathe the same air, even though it was so long ago and so much, it probably makes it all that much more real and probably makes you respect it that much more. Absolutely. And, you know, with landmarks such as that, there's there's a certain power behind the place. And whether you visit Waterloo or Gettysburg or Normandy, uh, one could argue that you really cannot understand a battlefield until you go visit it yourself. Uh, you can you can study it. You can be familiar with many of this specific details. Um, but, you know, there's certainly a heightened sense of appreciation when you can go walk in the footsteps of, of these guys yourself. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, it's nothing short of a, a revelation when you do so. And, you know, for all your listeners, I would certainly encourage them to uh, go and explore these places if they're ever granted the opportunity to do so. Well, I guess the the only thing we haven't brought up, and it just so happens to be coming up real soon, um, and you're within the area, are you and your guys going to Connie it this year, or are you uh, holding off? Yes, uh, we will be at uh, D-Day Conneaut in full force uh, here very, very soon. That's almost and, uh, a backyard it's, event it's, for it's, you guys, though, right? Yeah, relatively speaking, for uh, many of our members, our, our members are scattered all over uh Pennsylvania and even some in Ohio. Um, so uh, for some of us, it's a four-hour drive. For some of us, it's a, a two-hour drive. But uh, relatively speaking, um, it's uh, a, a fairly close event for us. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't get any further south. I'm uh, I'm a little bit north of Naples, which is a little bit north of Key West. And so right. um, unfortunately, that well, I don't want to say unfortunately. Fortunately for me, I had the opportunity to go out to Fredericksburg, Texas this year and spend the weekend participating in the uh, Living History events on what I like to call the soundstage out behind the um, National Museum of the Pacific War. 
And so all my finances were basically tied up into that project into one of those podcasts. But Connie is definitely on my bucket list. Now, obviously, this year would be the year to go because it is the 75th anniversary. But with that being said, from what I understand, every year is a great year. And so hopefully next year will be my year. But I do know uh, World War II Armor is coming up there, and I know some of my fellow uh, Floridians are go- heading that way. But unfortunately, this year will not be my year. Well, we look forward to seeing you there sometime. Thank you so much. Once again, author, living historian, educator, all-around good guy, and I couldn't think of a better person to be a uh, representative of the United States when traveling through France and parts of Europe this year uh, during the 75th anniversary of the T-Day and the liberation of France and Europe. One Jared Frederick. Jared, ah, Jared, thank you so much. And once again, let's give out your uh, website and uh, tell people they can get Dispatches of D-Day, A People's History of Normandy Invasion on Amazon and also your website. And if you want to plug your group's Facebook page, by all means. Yeah, uh, my personal website where people can obtain personalized copies of my book is jaredfrederick.com. And my reenacting organization is called the Furious Fourth World War II Living History Group. And uh, we have a very active Facebook page where we try to post daily content. And uh, we're very grateful for uh, the large number of followers that we've accumulated over these, these past several years. So if you're interested in either, I welcome you to check it out. Thank you so much, Jared. And we will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. And that is going to do it for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And I just want to say congratulations to RJ, a.k.a. Bob Nevins Jr. and his wife Chelsea. Their movie, Walking Point the Movie, had their premiere this weekend in Houston, Texas. I've seen photos online. I can't wait to hear the feedback of that. And more exciting for all of us is now that they've had their release, they can start uh, working on distribution. And we can see that movie here shortly, I hope. For those of you who've been a fan of this podcast for a long time, you've heard our interview with RJ, Chelsea, and the cast of the short film, Walking Point the Movie. So I'm excited for them that the uh, premiere has finally happened. And I wish I could have made it out there as well this weekend. There's so much stuff going on this weekend that I was unable to be a part of that I was invited to. But, you know, that's the way things go. We can't be everywhere all the time because there's not enough of us but congratulations to them big news on that and i know great things are going to come from that production and i'm so excited for the nevins family so bob nevins jr and his wife chelsea congratulations and of course to canine duke for his first leading role in a movie thank you guys so much we'll talk to you all next week